God has brought us together from so many different backgrounds to understand why we are here and what life is all about. And these holy days are a good time to review that and just to think through really what's going on. Why are we here on a Tuesday? I grew up in the Methodist church for 19 years of my life and went to church on Sunday Never in my life heard the preacher even mention the word Feast of Tabernacles. They didn't understand it, never talked about it. He may have read some reference to the Passover, although he didn't understand it. But I don't think I ever heard the word Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread mentioned and because uh, they didn't talk about it. God has, of course, most of the book of Zechariah, the 14th chapter, I mean, talks about all nations will have to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. But the Protestant churches never read that part. They act like that part doesn't exist because it condemns them if they do read that part of the Bible. Every nation on earth is soon going to observe these festivals just like we are. So we're pioneers as these festivals that we've been pointed out. These festivals picture God's plan. First of all, the other night we took the symbols of Christ's death, the bread and the wine, picturing how he was beaten and the bread pictures his body, so that's taken first because he was beaten in the early morning hours, and then he was taken out and crucified, and his blood was shed. So we take the red wine picturing his shed blood. Now we're here on the first of unleavened bread, and right after we repent and accept Christ's shed blood, we're supposed to begin with the help of God's Spirit. And remember, brethren, we're not really deeply converted necessarily when we're first baptized. We're like an embryo in our mother's womb. We're very, very tiny. We grow and grow and grow in grace and in knowledge. And maybe God has given you, some of you old people, more years. Maybe he's giving me more years because we need those years to continue to grow. We still have lessons to learn. And maybe some of those who've died are actually better off because they didn't need that extra time to grow that I need or you need. But we have to grow like Christ throughout our entire life. Then we picture in the next festival, Pentecost, the fact that the church of God today is a very small group. It's the early harvest, the harvest of first fruits, where the small harvest had realized right away God has not called everybody. When I first came to Ambassador College, I'd come from a high school of 1,200 students, actually 1,250 and Ambassador College had 12. I came from 1,200 to 12. I thought, what's going on? After a few weeks, I sort of realized, well, God wasn't calling everybody. And my Uncle Paul reminded me, he said, this man, meeting Mr. Armstrong, understands the purpose of human existence better than anyone on earth. And I came to deeply understand that and prove that to myself. But we come to realize the Feast of Pentecost pictures the first harvest, and God has to bless that harvest with, of course, his Holy Spirit and the power. Then the Feast of Trumpets comes along. Trumpets is an alarm of war, and that's what's to come next. Horrible things are going to begin to happen on this earth. It'll be exciting, but it won't be fun. It's going to be pretty awful to see young men, even young women, butchered and their bodies blown apart and all that kind of thing over and over and over. Then comes the day of at one men, when finally Satan is banished. And the world can understand. And then comes the Feast of Booths, or as it's called a number of times in the Old Testament, the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles, we normally call it. Two or three times it calls it the Feast of Ingathering 
because they gather in the great harvest. Then God does set his hand to save the whole world. And then after that, after that thousand-year period, then we have the great white throne judgment day, the last great day, when God then finally, finally opens the minds and hearts of so many people that you and I love, our former friends and relatives out in the world, and many of them are good people as human beings go. They just don't get it. They really are not trying to be meat. They just are not called yet. God has not turned the screw in their head. And I would not be here except God did not turn the screw in my head. I did not understand. And many of you did not grow up in the church and you did not understand. God had to open your mind in a special way. So that wonderful time is coming too. And God's complete plan is pictured in these holy days. And so I know we're reviewing it, but please think about it, brethren. It's a wonderful blessing that we have this knowledge. The world doesn't. When I was back at Methodism, my friend Jimmy Mallett got his neck broken. I've told you that story many times. And I thought, well, why did God let Jimmy die? And I didn't understand. I just thought God's way off somewhere. And the Methodist choir was wearing black robes. And they were up in the choir loft. And they'd come down from each side and then get down below. And they'd sing, holy, holy, holy. And they talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And I didn't know what the Holy Ghost was. I thought it was sort of a holy spook with a black robe or something. The Holy Ghost. I, I didn't understand. And most of the people sitting there didn't understand either, obviously. God was not calling them yet. So we do have understanding. And we can be grateful not to wonder, well, why is all this happening? Why is God letting these 71 people get blown up over here and what was it, in Afghanistan or somewhere the other day in this bus thing where the uh, bad guys set off an explosion and other people are killed here and there. We're having this great big memorial up in Boston. How many were killed? Only three people. That's terrible, but I mean, you think about it. People are being killed almost every day in Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan and you get 20 or 30 or 50 or the other day 71. Well, there they go again. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them are being killed constantly. We don't think about it because it's far off. God has blessed us. He's brought us into the place of Joseph, the house of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And we have all kinds of food. I know Mr. and Mrs. Ruan had a nice cruise recently. And as they said, when you get into Haiti and some of these Mediterranean islands where the people are poor, you come back and really appreciate what we have here. We have things they've never had in their entire life, more than enough to eat, way more than enough to eat, and all the other things we take for granted because we are recipients of the blessings God gave our father Abraham. And all of you, brethren, black, white, yellow, old, and young, whatever, if we're unconverted, we're all children of Abraham. We're all Israelites, spiritual Israel before God, and we share in those blessings and in the blessings of understanding the purpose of human existence. So we're here because God commanded our ancestors this, and I won't go through the whole proof of the holy days here today, because that would be boring, most of you know it, but any of you new brethren, please get the booklet. We have a booklet, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. You know how to write for it, you know how to call for it. Mr. Armstrong, you say, Box 111, Eugene, Oregon. (laughs) So you can write our box number, and call us, 
and get a free booklet. And maybe it's out there. Is it out there on the counter? I guess they have that booklet out there too. I don't know if they have them all, but if you don't have it, get the booklet. It's absolutely free. (laughs) And read it and study it on the holy days and understand the holy days and the meaning God has in them. But just review part of it. Turn with me back to Leviticus chapter 23. Here's the only place. Why do we turn here? Because it's the only place in the entire Bible, even though it talks about sacrifices, it's the book to the Levites, the priests, but the only place where all the days are listed in order. And brethren, let me say again to any of you who are new, we do have a number of new people. I hope you older people understand and put up with this, but it's important. You newer people and you young people, please understand something Mr. Armstrong said over and over again. And as you studied the Bible, you'll come to realize it's true. It's very important. God did not, the, God is smart. You know that. He created the heavens and the earth. He created your mind. He could have written the Bible, you know, capital Roman numeral one, two, three, and under each one, A, B, C, and rip it all so clear. Anybody could understand it and nobody could fail to understand it. Why didn't God do that? Because as he explains, he's not trying to call everybody now. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless God calls him. You know, John 6, verse 64, and John 6, verse 65. He wasn't trying to call most people, so he wrote the Bible, as it says there, a little here and a little there. You have to seek for that understanding, cry out for it, study it, look for it. He didn't write it, great big Roman number. So he does in this one place, put it in with the book of the Levites. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, Leviticus 23, verse 2. Speak to children of Israel, say the feasts of the Lord. These are not the feasts of the Jews. These are the feasts of Yahweh, the feasts of the ever-living one. They're his feasts, brethren. Don't ever let people say, oh, they're Jewish. They are God's feasts, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, where our presence is commanded unless we're really sick or on a long trip. These are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. So here he talks about the first feast, the weekly feast, the holy day, the Sabbath day. You shall do no work in it. It's the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Then verse 4, he starts into the annual holy days that come seven times in a year. These are the feasts of the ever-living one, holy convocations which you shall proclaim in their appointed times, or as the Hebrew says, in their seasons. They come in the harvest seasons of Palestine, as we saw. The spring feast is pictured by Pentecost, the great harvest of souls, at the end of the age is pictured by the Feast of Ingathering. They're based on the harvest feasts of Palestine. It's their usual proclaim in their seasons. On the 14th day of the first month, so it starts right out in the spring, in the first month at twilight, right at dusk, is the Lord's Passover. Again, not the Jews' Passover, but the Lord's Passover. And we celebrated that the other night. It's at the beginning of the 14th day. And on the 15th day of the month, which we're in now, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So if you count seven days, beginning with today, the final day, the seventh day, will be next Monday. So you all know we're going to have another service then next Monday as the final day of unleavened bread. Then later here, and of course many places, he tells you during this time, you're not to have leaven. 
And we know from the booklet, many sermons we've given you, leaven causes bread to puff up. Sin causes us to puff up. We're filled with vanity. I want to do what I want to do. I want what I want, and I want it now. This is the attitude of the world, and God helps us to see that's wrong during these feasts, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread particularly. So we observe this festival as God Almighty commands in order to help us see how we're wrong and to come out of sin. Back in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you would turn there with me briefly. Ezekiel chapter 36, brethren, I've explained this to you a number of times, is talking very clearly about modern Israel, modern Israel at the end of the age, the British Commonwealth and American peoples coming back from slavery. He said in verse 14, I mean verse 24, Ezekiel 36 verse 24, For I will take you, the modern Israelites, from among the nations and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. He's going to bring us back from slavery. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. We're not clean now. We're going into homosexuality, group marriages, polygamy, probably bestiality before long, every vile thing that human beings under the influence of Satan the devil can imagine they're beginning to go into. And our courts go right along with it. And most Protestant preachers are going right along with it. They are. You know that. Read a little bit. They, they make excuses, but they let it happen. They don't really preach strongly against it at all. I will give you a new heart when God brings us back. We're going to be humbled. We'll have been in concentration camps. We'll be shaken our peoples that live through that. A new spirit will I give you and take the heart of stone. Our people are hard-hearted. I know I've tried to explain to my own neighbor, one of my neighbors is uh, friendly but a very strong evangelical, and all he can do is talk about grace, and he doesn't understand about God's law at all. Our neighbor on the other side is kind of interested, at least the woman is, and I give her the... uh, started to say the plain truth I gave her Tomorrow's World magazine and she seems to appreciate it. Who knows, maybe God will call her. But I'll put a new spirit in you and give you a heart of flesh. You'll be willing to listen. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. When you see, when Israel is brought back, they're all going to be given God's spirit and cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, the New Testament expresses that we're not going to keep all those statutes in the letter, but we're certainly going to keep them in the Spirit. The holy days, if you read the Old Testament, are among God's statutes. That's why we're here. They're statutes of God. They're put right in that section, and they're called statutes. Do we keep the statutes the way they did in the Old Testament? Exactly no. We don't have a roast lamb and bitter herbs. We have broken bread And red wine, the New Testament expounds and explains how to keep the statutes. But we are to keep the principle of them as God shows us through the New Testament. You will walk in my statutes. They're not Jewish, they're God's. And you will keep my judgments and do them. So among God's statutes are the holy days. And we will all be doing that. And he says, then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. Verse 28 and you'll be my people, and I will be your God. Finally, America will realize that. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, all our homosexuality, 
and young people living together all over, literally millions of them just living together without marriage. They don't care. All these Hollywood stars, the way they live and the way they talk, they're spitting in God's face. They pay no attention to what God says about marriage, family, child-rearing, anything else. I will deliver you from your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. Indicating which the other scriptures will. He certainly has done that though. He will have brought that on us before. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you will need never again to bear the reproach of famine among the nations as they just recently did. Then, you see, when we're brought back from slavery, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. Some of these men that were homosexuals and using their body parts for play way God never intended, destroying the family, lusting after one another, rather than thinking, well, God created us male and female, and God made these beautiful women to be our mates, to be our companions, so we can have children. We can build a family like God himself is building a family. They'll hate themselves to realize how stupid they were getting into that. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake I do this, says the eternal God. Let it be known to you, but be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, our ways, not God's ways, O house of Israel. He's talking to us. He's talking to these people out in the street. They don't get it. They don't understand. God is not calling them yet. And they're going in those directions all the time, as most of you know. So this is what's going to happen. He's going to have to soften their hearts. He's going to bring them to a depth of repentance they have never experienced as a nation. But brethren, we're called ahead of time. Before you were baptized, and just before this Passover this year, I don't care how many years you've been in the church, did you ever loathe yourself? I hope you did. I've had to do that. I've had selfishness and vanity and lust and greed. I'm human. Each one of us has to examine ourselves before the Passover and come to loathe ourselves to realize we are not right. Our human flesh is rotten. We've got to beg God, beseech God, cry out to God, seek for God to clean us up and scrub us out to make us like He is, to make us like He wants us to be. With this attitude, we can really overcome. But if we just kind of go, well, we're going to overcome. And no, you don't just kind of go along and somehow it all happens. You've got to come to the place that you loathe yourself. And you deeply, profoundly want to overcome and get God's help through the Holy Spirit to do that. So let's understand this. Now let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in your New Testament. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. And a familiar scripture to many of you. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is talking about this man who is committing incest with his stepmother. And he says in verse 5, Deliver such a one to Satan. Put him out, delivering over to the devil, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
So now he's talking a little bit about the meaning of unleavened bread. You women who are cooks, you know that leaven tends to spread through the door. It just spreads and spreads. That's one reason once in a while we have to put someone out of the church if they're around whisper, 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 and kind of watering things down and hurting people. That will spread through the whole church. We've had to learn that. It will destroy the church. You can't let that stay there. God commands us to put it out. And he says here, a little leaven spreads. Mr. Armstrong used to say, one rotten apple rottens the whole barrel. And that happens. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. But is he talking about this sinner? Not alone. You see here he's talking really about unleavened bread as well. Purge out the old leaven <clears throat> that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. Well, they were unleavened physically. They were keeping the days of unleavened bread. This Corinthian church, this, look, look in chapter 1, verse 1, as you know, it says, to verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth. This was the church of God. It was at the city of Corinth. They were human beings. They'd been coming out of paganism. So they had all kinds of sexual orgies they'd been in in the past and drunken parties. They had to repent. Some of them were still going into some of that stuff. So he said, you, you are unleavened. You put out the physical leaven. But he said that that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. But they weren't unleavened spiritually. For indeed Christ our Passover, so Christ is our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, talking about God's festivals, therefore let us keep the feast. What is the feast Paul could be talking about? Even some of the Protestant commentaries understand that. It's so clear right after the Passover comes what? the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they were keeping the feast physically. They put out leavened bread, but they still had this sinner, this man committing incest right in their end, in their midst, and he said there's sexual immorality commonly reported among you, such as even not named among the Gentiles in chapter 1. They had that. They had not put out the sin, even though they put out the leaven. So remember, brethren, when you put out the leaven, and it's good that you do that, and try to get rid of all the crumbs and lift up your floor mats and your cars. That's all okay. It's good to do. But the big thing is not to get rid of some crumbs. The big thing is to get rid of the sin in your heart. The sin in your heart. The vanity, the jealousy, the lust, the greed, the resentment, the hate the lust where you look at someone else and start lusting and thinking evil thoughts in your mind or building of hate. I resent this people, this person. I don't like them. They bug me. And you almost develop the spirit of murder if you let your heart dwell on that. Put that out. That's the big lesson here by far. So therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven. No, that's all right. Put it out. You should nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. That's the big thing. Get rid of the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So keep the feast spiritually, not just physically. And that's the big leaven. You're to get rid of the big lesson. You're to get rid of leaven, and you're to get rid of sin. <clears throat> and that's the thing we've all got to deeply 
want to do with all of our hearts. So in 1 Corinthians here, it talks how we've got to hate sin, we've got to realize it spreads, and we've got to understand one key thing to do that. And there is one key aspect of Christian life in the way you put it out that I want to dwell upon today. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 4, which I've done with you a number of times. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we'll begin to pick up what this is. As the Israelites come back, we just read about them coming back and having to repent and learning God's statutes there in uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. Notice what happens. He said in Deuteronomy 4 verse 25, When you beget children, talking to our ancestors, the Israelites, and grandchildren, coming clear down to our age when you read it all, and have grown old in the land and make carved images and so on, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish. I know these people out in the street don't understand that. And we have a better community here than most communities. This is a very religious city, and many of these evangelical Protestants are very nice people. They're very courteous. And so God has not brought down the tribulation on them yet. And we pray that many of them will yet repent. And we hope that as we go around this city, we can help people. We're reaching this city, frankly, pretty thoroughly. You can hear the program five or six times on, on each weekend here in Charlotte. But we need to reach them even more powerfully. But he says, you will utterly perish from the land. And you will be destroyed. Verse 27, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number. We have here many millions of people, hundreds of millions here in the United States. Before long, will be few in number. And in the nations where the Lord will drive you, will be scattered to other nations. And there you will serve gods, so-called gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, neither see nor hear nor smell. But from there, you see, at the end of the age, after the tribulation, you will seek Notice that word, brethren, and think about it. Once people are truly shaken and they loathe themselves for their sins, then if their heart is right, what will they begin to do? They will begin to seek the Lord your God and you will find him. How will you really find God? One way, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When is that going to happen? When you're in distress, when you're really humble. That's what it takes to bring most people to really begin to seek God. When all these come upon you, when? In the latter days, our day, the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice. So this is the message for all of us in the latter days. God will give you his spirit. God will help you. God will protect you. God will deliver you. If, that's big two-letter word, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, how do you seek God? With all your heart and with all your soul. I could go on for the next four or five hours on that, but Mr. League is going to pull the plug up here. They have a secret trap door here, so they won't let me go on four or five hours. But anyway, I, there's so many things in the Bible I'll give you some of them, but please think about this as a tremendous key. It sounds simple, but...
But Frank, you're going to say it's a key thing that we have often overlooked in our lives that very few people really have done the way God serves in the old and the way Mr. Armstrong did. To seek God profoundly, to seek God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's what God tells us to do. And that is a tremendous key uh, to overcoming. Now let's turn to John, I mean to Jeremiah, if you would, chapter 29. Jeremiah uh, 29, brethren. And notice what God tells us here. Jeremiah chapter 29. Here he's talking about Israel coming back, Judah technically, from the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the eternal after 70 years are completed at Babylon, in their famous Babylonian captivity. I will visit you and perform my good work toward you and cause you to return to this place. They're going to bring them back finally to Israel, to Jerusalem and so on. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God knows we want good things. He's for that. He's not against that. But he's simply got to take us sometimes, as my dad used to have to take me and shake me to wake me up. Otherwise, I was going to go my own way. And God does that in love. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek. Here it is again, the word seek. You will seek me and find me when? When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity and so on. Only when you seek God with all your heart and all your soul, you begin to realize you need God. You cannot make it on your own. You don't have the strength. Your mind keeps wandering and you have thoughts of vanity and selfishness and competing with others and I want this and your mind goes on off on material things and you hate yourself and the only way you're going to get the outside help is to begin to get a regular program regularly in your life all through the year to begin to get a pattern, develop a pattern of seeking God. Seeking God. Do you think God's Spirit just automatically comes? Well, in one way it comes after you've been baptized, but hopefully you've really repented and gone through a process of repentance and self-examination. But then if you just go on and say, well, I'm in the church now, so I'll just come once a week and it'll all happen. No, it will not all happen. It doesn't just happen that way. You've got to develop a pattern in your life. And brethren, I want to help you with this because I've seen this among the leading men of God whose names I've got to know. And I'm not any better than any of them. Some had better personal character and personality and certainly better appearance and many other things than me. They were smarter in certain ways. But maybe because I was more humble and had more to learn, God was able to help me watch Mr. Armstrong's example, watch others that were growing and see the ones who were growing and the ones who were more important looking and acting sometimes fouled up. Why? Because they were doing it in their own strength. We had one big evangelist who was a big, powerful John Wayne-type voice and big, long arms, and he'd give passionate sermons at the Civic Auditorium in Pasadena. So I'm not trying to hurt him. Only five or ten of you might remember him, but very passionate sermons. And he'd get so worked up, he'd take his hand and, and just take the sweat off his brow over to go over. That was his trademark. Everyone thought, boy, he's really passionate. But he was partly an actor. 
And we found that out later, and I began to realize that, and I know that Mr. and Mrs. Partian and Mr. and Mrs. Raymond McNair, and, and I got to go over to this rich, what was his name, over in uh, part of Pasadena, and then we, this woman, this man's wife, who was vice president of Xerox, her husband was very high up and smart, and we had a bridge group, and she said, well, so-and-so, this man, she was not in the church, but she attended it takes one to know one. She says, so-and-so is an actor. He's a good actor. He should have studied Shakespeare. She could see that. He's so dramatic, but his heart was not in it in the right way. He wanted to show off. He had vanity. Many others you could see if you really knew them and understood them as I did because I, even though I was younger, I came first and I taught them and saw them and how they acted and why I could see they knew the truth. And they understood the truth and they could be very dramatic about it, but they were not really humble. They were not able to be corrected if you would try to correct them. They kind of flare on you. One of the deepest signs of a really converted person, you need to examine yourself on this. Are you willing to take correction? Are you personally, each one of you sitting out there willing to take correction? That's a big determinant of your Christian life. It really is. If you're corrected and you well, I'm not that way and so on, you try to defend what? You defend the self. You don't want the self to be attacked. You're filled with vanity. Your mind is on self, self, self. Your mind is on how much can I give to God? And if someone finds out something bad I did, if you're really converted, you'll say, well, I needed that. And it hurts, <laughs> but I needed to figure this out. I needed someone to explain. And even if they're wrong once in a while, maybe they overdo it. No one has ever corrected me perfectly that I know of. God corrects us perfectly, but the men who have corrected may have overdone it or underdone it. None of us does anything perfectly, but you should still try to learn the lesson. Try to learn the lesson. Be so surrendered as best you can that you try to learn whatever lesson God is trying to teach you because you are seeking one thing. You're seeking God you're seeking God's will, not your will. You're seeking God's purpose. You're seeking eternal life, God's way, and whatever else is worth nothing. It's worth nothing. It's like refuse, as Paul explains there in Philippians 3. I counted all these honors I had before as a Pharisee in the Jewish hierarchy. I count them all as so much rubbish, he said. And that's what they are. You were president of your class, or you were president of the company, or you made some money, or you did. So what? That's all so much rubbish in the sight of God. Here's the creator of heaven and earth watching where we are right now because we have more of God's zealous people right here, right now in this building, and probably anywhere on earth since this is the headquarters church. His mind, his eyes are on this place. And he's so much greater than all of us put together, there's no comparison. We ought to worship him and realize how weak we are. We're seeking him. And we need to have that deep feeling that we're really seeking God. So he said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You've got to really learn to do that, my brethren. Now turn, if you would, at this point to Daniel chapter 9. The book of Daniel and chapter 9, and again, a familiar verse, or paragraph, I think, to most of you. Chapter 9, verse 1. 
in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books, the books of the Bible, Biblios in the New Testament, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the destruction of Jerusalem. So here came Daniel 70 years later, and he realized it was almost up, and he was concerned. He was asking, how long, O Lord, have mercy begin to intervene? Then I set my face toward the eternal God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, it doesn't use the word seeking, but he was sure seeking, wasn't he? I made my request. How? By prayer, which is asking or seeking, and supplications. means repeated, urgent, humble prayers, supplications. With fasting. He was fasting, doing without food for days at a time. And sackcloth, as they used to wear, a sign of deep humility in those days. I prayed to the eternal God and made my confession and said, and brethren, this is something you ought to do and I ought to do. You don't just say, I'm sorry. You begin to explain it. Tell God how you're wrong and why you're wrong and think through your real problems. And to be honest, no one is there. Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and talk to God in secret. It's all right to have a, a prayer before a meeting. Sometimes different department heads have prayers before a meeting. Sometimes I do, sometimes they don't. Depends on how important the meeting is because we all should have prayed in the morning before we left the door anyway. Doesn't say you have to pray all day long. God is not impressed with our public prayers. He tells us to go into our room, pray to God on our knees, and go, no one else needs to know. But you can say, God, I was lusting, and my mind went on this thing over and over. Father in heaven, I've had this resentment. I have this competitive feeling towards so-and-so, and I want to beat them out of this, or I'm sorry they got this, and I don't like them, and they bug me, and I'm whatever. Whatever it is, draw it out before God. He knows it anyway. It helps you to get rid of it, to send it, spit it out. And put it in the garbage pail. Get rid of it. Throw it away. It's so much garbage. It's wrong. Vomit it up. So he began to confess. O eternal great and awesome God. Who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him. And with those who keep his commandments. We. He didn't say they. Here was one of the most dedicated men in human history. When you read this book. And even what Jesus said about him. And others. We. He included himself, have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. Now, we in this room, you say, well, I know Mr. Meredith, and he's getting old, and he stumbles, and he makes mistakes, and I disagree with this or that, some of you may think. Or I know Mr. League, he's old, and he stumbles, or he makes mistakes. He's human. He's not perfect. So I can't believe everything he says. And I know Mr. Rob McNair, he's too young, so I can't trust him either. And the other minister, he's in between old and young, but he has other, you know what I mean? You can find something bad about everybody if you want to. They're too old or too young or too fat or too thin. Daniel wasn't doing that. He said, we have not heeded your ministers. The prophets were God's ministers back then. 
We have not heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, princes, fathers, and all the people of the land. O eternal righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame. Every one of us in this room should sometimes feel a sense of shame. We have been wrong. I have been wrong. I've been sometimes too pushy, too harsh, too impatient. All kinds of things are wrong. And I've asked God with tears in my eyes, I mean it to forgive me many, many times. I've got to keep on doing that till the day I die. Because the day before I die, maybe the hour before I die, I will make some mistakes. I'm sure I will. I will not have the perfect spirit that Christ had. So you keep on repenting right up until you die. And we've got to do that. And God wants us to have that attitude. And so he says, we have done wrong and we've not heeded your servants. Shame belongs to us, to the men of Judah and inhabitants of Judah and all Israel, those near and far off and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness. We've not been totally faithful to the God who made us and gives us life and breath. We've done things we knew better. All of you in this room probably know better from a lot of things. Some of you are newer, but you still have done many things since you knew the truth that were wrong. And you were wrong. Really wrong. And you need to repent. And I need to repent. We all need to repent in the right way and can keep examining ourselves and growing and seek God and know that it's only through God in us can we overcome because of the unfaithfulness which they've committed against you. He says, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Yes, we have. So we've got to really understand that and have that attitude of seeking God in prayer and supplication with fasting. Fasting is a powerful tool. And if we don't use that tool once in a while, we will not be as close to God as we should be. And you've all got to learn. As I've told you, when I was younger, I tried to fast sometimes twice a month, but more recent years, just once a month. And since my stroke, I don't even fast that often. But I try to fast at least two or three times a year, even though it hurts me a lot more with the stroke, because I don't want to go along without fasting at all. Some of the other ministers told me, you may not need to fast because the stroke makes makes me more humble anyway. But we've all, even though it might hurt us, it's better to fast than not to fast. And I'd better fast too much than too little. If I die fasting, I'd rather die that way than die because I didn't fast. Keep on fasting. Make yourself do without food. And during that day of fasting, set apart time to seek God. Seek God during that time. Now, notice one of the best examples of that. And uh, that's the example of Mr. Armstrong And one of the most inspiring and powerful books in all the world, apart from the Bible, is this book right here. It's volume one of the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong. Now, volume two mentions me five or six times, and that's good. I get an honorable mention because I was part of the work. But I'm not even mentioned in volume one. But volume one, I'm recommending to you even more than volume two. Because Mr. Armstrong and Aaron Dean kind of put together volume two, a lot of it out of his coworker letters, and it was not written in the same way. Volume one is a record of a man who profoundly surrendered to God, gave himself to God, and was like a prophet of God. And God has used him more than any man in the last several hundred years, as far as we can tell, 
to preach the gospel powerfully to the whole world as a witness. And you read about that. This is a book of faith and understanding and courage and determination. And you'll learn all those lessons of leadership in this book if you read it and reread it. Volume 1. And on page 300, on page, no, 390, I'm reading just sections of this here to tell you this story. He tells here about something. I won't tell, read it all. It'll take too long. But Mr. Armstrong tells about dramatic healings that took place in his life and with his own wife. And by the way, some of you might ask, well, you believe all that stuff? Yes, I do believe all that stuff. Some of you new people are smartlings out there. I do believe that stuff. Somehow God brought me early on and I got to know Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong very, very well. And she was very blunt and she would correct her husband once in a while or criticize once in a while. And she would, but she would verify these basic things. I heard Dick and Ted both talk about these. It was something real to them. And between my sophomore and junior year, I went up to Oregon to work in the woods and I got to meet and get to know Mr. and Mrs. Starkey. She was the first paid employee of Ambassador College. And then Mrs. Uh, Chloe Shippert and her husband, Art Shippert, and old Mrs. Johnson and several others who knew Mr. Armstrong way back in the 1930s. And I've asked them, because I was from Missouri. You know, Missouri is the show-me state. I said, did you ever hear Mr. Armstrong or see how he went around? He said he took out, he had to put pieces of cardboard in his shoes. He was so poor. Oh, yeah, I saw him. They saw those things. They called them Herbert and Loma. They saw Herbert and Loma Armstrong doing without. And they said Mr. Armstrong was a proud man. But when it's during Depression and they didn't have any money, you could tell they weren't eating very well. And some of the brethren would bring them some turnips or corn or something. They probably didn't bring things as often. He had to pray for food once in a while so that he had enough to eat. And one person mentioned, I know he was a proud man, and he'd come to church and button his coat together when it was cold and snowy up in Oregon. He was used to wearing nice suits. Later on, he wore tailor-made suits. He told about many times in the right way. He had an office in the Loop in Chicago, and he was very successful and he wore nice clothes. He knew how to wear very nice clothes. But he had to button his overcoat together with a safety pin because his wife was sick for months and they had no money even for buttons. And I've asked people that. Yeah, they remember that. That's one person that said it. He was a proud man, but I saw him button his coat together with a safety pin. That happened. They saw him walking over the hills of Oregon in the rain to pass out handbills for these little tiny campaigns he's conducting. That happened. That's why I believe it. Not because I'm a nut or believe anything anyone says. I went up there and I checked up on Mr. Armstrong. And Mr. Armstrong was human. And Mr. Armstrong made mistakes. And sometimes he said something very powerfully that was not exactly true. He told us about counting Pentecost the wrong way. But what happened? Later on, God brought it to his attention. And then he taught us even more powerfully how he was wrong. He had to eat crow. He corrected himself publicly and powerfully in how to count Pentecost. He was willing to change. He was willing to acknowledge his mistake. He was willing to acknowledge his mistake publicly, which hurt him on divorce and remarriage and a number of other things. 
He was all there. As Mr. Arm, Mrs. Armstrong told me more than once, she said, Rod, my husband could not be a hypocrite, you know, to say one thing and do another and get away with it because whatever he thinks comes out of his mouth. He was very open. If he had constipation, he'd tell, not everyone, but he'd tell all of us older guys that he worked with like sons. If his wife didn't kiss him that morning, he'd tell us about it if they had a little problem or whatever it was. He was very open. And therefore, I could see he was utterly sincere. Sometimes he had vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed, like we do, not as much as many of us, perhaps, but he was willing to acknowledge whatever it was, face it, grow, move on. But he determined to give his life to God. Here he talks about the time when they were first being converted, how his wife, they were rock bottom, with, but poor as mice in the Depression, and within six weeks of the birth of our fourth child, who had been Ted, my wife, who had been so miraculously healed in 1927, was now in an alarming condition. She was anemic. Her blood was lacking in iron. Her strength appeared depleted. The doctor was alarmed, and they were afraid she couldn't have the child. And they'd been in such financial depths that the first hospital bill hadn't been paid for Dick's birth. And they would not admit my wife until the bill was paid. He didn't know how all this was going to happen. I prayed for Mrs. Arms' healing, but she had not been healed. I prayed again and again, but no improvement. What's wrong? He began to seek God, and he tells that. He said, I had surrendered, but he did not believe as he should have believed. There was no more time to lose. I had to find the answer I knew of only one way, fasting and prayer. He writes, you seek God in profound Bible study. I should add that. That's what he was doing all day long for those months. And fasting and prayer. And I would add meditation because obviously he was thinking very, very deeply about what's wrong and why. So you study this book, drink in of it, read it, read everything that you can that might pertain to your problem. Then you think about what you've read, meditate. Don't just let your mind wander. It's not some oriental meditation where you let your mind go blank. It's a, it's a specific concentration of the mind on a single issue. What's wrong? How do I understand this? Why did I make this mistake recently? What can I do to rectify this mistake? You think about that thing in a concentrated way. Think, think, think. And on the Bible you've been reading. Then you pray on your knees to God, both knees, and cry out to God. Put your hearts in your prayer. And while you're doing that, you're fasting if you have the strength to do it. You're eating no food at all. No food, no water, as the Bible indicates. You're just existing on sunshine and fresh air for a day or two, and very seldom does it kill you. <laughs> I've done it many times. It never killed me yet. I'm 83 Three, four, so I'm sure you won't die unless there's something really wrong. Out of caution, it's good if you have a problem, check with your doctor. I should say that. People sue if you know. So we're not giving medical advice here. But it's a spiritual thing. If you have good health and not worried, I would fast. I always did. And God will bless you for that. So he began to seek God. I had to find the answer. Fasting and prayer. It was the last ditch I didn't know how one ought to fast and pray. I'd never done it before. Here's right during his conversion process. So when Jesus' disciples were unable to cast out a demon, he had to fast. So I began to fast. Fasting began on a Sabbath morning. 
That morning I ate no breakfast, not knowing how one ought to go about fasting and prayer. I prayed and asked God to show me the way. And I would suggest that to you. During the early days of my conversion, I would ask God, Father, I don't know how to pray as I ought. I was taught by my parents to just pray lying in bed, you know. Now I lay me down to sleep. I prayed the Lord my soul to keep. Please bless Daddy and Mother and Patty and Catherine and our dog Poochie and left so whatever. I didn't have much else to say. I didn't know how to pray. I had to ask God to help me learn how to pray. Then I'd listen to Mr. Armstrong's prayers in church on occasion or others and gradually put it together as to how to pray. So he asked God to help him. Then since God speaks to us through his written word, I began to search the Bible. Yes, he did study and study about fasting. For one hour, get this, brethren, one hour, with the aid of a concordance, I studied passage of the scripture on the subject of fasting. Have you ever done that? Think about it. Be honest with yourself. Get a concordance and look up all the scriptures in the Bible on fasting, fasting. And you'll begin to realize more about fasting than you may have ever done in your life. And praying, read many scriptures on prayer, much of the time on my knees, he said. Then for one hour, after one hour of Bible study, in thought and and contemplation, I turned over in my mind the scriptures I had read and reflected. Again, he was meditating, meditating on my life in recent months. Then I spent the next hour in talking to God in prayer. So one hour in Bible study, one hour in meditation, thought, and self-examination, then an hour in prayer. So I had to continue this in order, one hour in Scripture study, one in contemplation, one in prayer. He said, I did not once ask God to heal my wife as yet. I'd been doing that for weeks without result. I was fasting and praying, not for the purpose of bringing pressure on God to force him to obey my will and give what was asked, but to find out what was wrong. When you don't get an answer, beseech God, say, Father, what's wrong? Please show me what's wrong. Help me to change then. Seek God. Seek God in Bible study, meditation, prayer, and fasting. I realized I did not need to nag at God and never fast as a means of inducing or forcing God to answer a prayer. Oh, doesn't want that. Gradually the truth began to dawn on him and he began to realize, as he tells in the following pages, that he still had his mind on this special clay project, a chance he had to make a lot of money because he'd been in business before and he had to realize that anything that comes between you and God becomes an idol. It becomes an idol and you've got to crush that idol, whatever it is. If your job and money comes between you and God, if your lust after some girl or after some other situation comes between you and God and you can't even think straight, you've got to crush it out. And ask God in heaven to help you get rid of that. That doesn't mean you could never marry her if she's the right girl. But you've got to crush out the wrong approach that you have in your mind. Whatever that is. You've got to not have anything that comes between you and God and becomes an idol. Some people are not lusting after money. They're not lusting after sex. They're not lusting after marriage. It doesn't always just involve sex. Wanting a mate, above, you know, that can be apart from just plain sex. It can be your own 
your own self, your persona. You're so important that you can't let that persona be challenged, your own approach to yourself. We have a very important man in this country that has been described as filled with that self-love. And some people love themselves too much, it becomes an idol. <laughs> And uh, you must not do that either. Self-love to the point of idolatry. Whatever it is, if it becomes something between you and God, whatever it is, it may be several things. It doesn't always have to be just one thing. But you've got to learn to get rid of it, to overcome it, and to realize you can only overcome it with the help of God's Spirit, and you can only get that power from God's Spirit by seeking God, literally going after God. Does God automatically start giving His Spirit every morning? I don't think so. My experience in the 64... A half years I've been in the church of God is God does not seem to help me and give me his spirit and his special help and inspiration in preaching and teaching and writing and helping others and doing the work of God unless I start out each day with prayer. And I'd better pray at least 20 or 30 minutes minimum. You can't talk for two minutes with God. We had one very important evangelist with tremendous capacity As he got weak and was beginning to fall away, he said, well, even seven minutes was enough in prayer. If you really pour out your heart to God for seven minutes, when he said that in the auditorium in Pasadena, or maybe it was the, maybe it was the college gymnasium, I think, where he gave that sermon, I thought, this guy's in trouble. I knew him really well, of course, <laughs> he was already in trouble. But how could he say seven minutes? If you're in a hurry and you can't pray more than that, that's different. But as a way of life, do you, when you're courting your wife, when I was courting Cheryl, did I talk to her for seven minutes? You better believe I did. And I talked to her a long time. I'd drive up to Bakersfield and pick her up and bring her back down. And then so it didn't look odd that I was with her in, in some hotel or somewhere. And to save money, I palmed her off on Mr. and Mrs. Debar Apartheid. Mrs. Apartheid's here. She can tell you about that. And Mr. and Mrs. Apartheid would keep her Saturday night and Sunday night on the alternate. So I didn't wear them out too much. I'd have her stay with Mr. and Mrs. Uh, oh, she remember their name. That Barbara from, from Bakersfield that she knew them real well. And she was baptized the same day that they were baptized up in Bakersfield. But she stayed with them. But I talked to her all the way back for two hours. We talked, and then I'd drop her off. Then I'd take her out to dinner, and we'd talk and talk and take walks together. We did some evil things. We would hold hands even before we were married. How shocking. And uh, so we would talk and walk and hold hands and, and, and get to know each other. And then I'd bring her back, and maybe I kissed her before we leave each other sometimes. I don't think at the beginning I did. But anyway, gradually we grew closer and closer, and then I'd Take, spend time with her all day Sabbath and take her to church. And the first time I took her to church in Los Angeles, I was pastor of the church in Los Angeles, and here comes their minister in with this beautiful, gorgeous young woman. And I could see all the women's eyes, cut well, they all figured out what was happening real quick. <laughs> It's kind of amusing. I knew they did that when they saw that happen. It was kind of amusing to see the look on their face. Here he comes. He's not walking in with this beautiful woman because they're playing dominoes together or whatever. So she, they knew something was up. So I was getting ready to marry her. And then I'd take her out Saturday night and have long talks. Or we'd go dining and dancing. And then we'd go out to Disneyland or Marineland or 
or out in the mountains and hike or somewhere on Sunday, sometimes taking along my little daughter Rebecca, who was still small. Then I'd drive her up to Bakersfield, you know, and talk to her all the way up there, two hours drive. Then I'd drive back and pray to God about it. And under the moonlight, I remember a very romantic courtship I thought we had. And I'd pray to God and ask God to guide it for good part of the way back every Sunday night after we'd spent the whole weekend together, Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and finally Sunday night. Then we'd call each other every night. Did we talk for seven minutes? No. <laughs> I spent a lot of money on the phone. Finally, I had to marry her in order to save money. <laughs> the phone bill was getting too big, and the expense of going to Bakersfield was getting too much, and I was losing too much sleep going up to Bakersfield all the time. So we really had to get married. There was no other way. So we did. Anyway, I'm kidding on some of that, of course. But anyway, you don't court your wife by spending seven minutes you have got to have a love affair. Please get this, brethren. Think of it this way. It's a different way, but you have got to learn to have a love affair with God that you love. You love your Father in heaven. You love your Lord, Jesus Christ, at the Father's right hand, and you enjoy talking to them, walking with them, communing with them, sharing with them, and you're not watching the watch and saying, I'm up to 15 minutes down, I've just got five more to go, and then I fulfill my duty to pray 20 minutes a day. If you pray that way, you're in trouble. You've got to pour out your heart to God to where you're not even watching the clock very much. You might watch it if you have to get to work at a certain time, but you, you, know, you usually leave yourself 30 or 40 minutes. If you run a few minutes over, that's fine. To where you're praying at least 25 to 35 or 40 minutes every morning, God's willing, before the day ever starts, before the devil starts coming at you through the day. You've gone on both knees, you lift up your hands, and, and hopefully in front of a window if you can. I enjoy praying out of our second-story window so no one could peek in, and only the people, if they happen to be in a helicopter right out there, and no one's ever gotten that close in a helicopter. But anyway, you're talking to God. And you see the, the beautiful trees and the, the stars at night or early morning. You're, you're talking to the creator of heaven and earth. You pour out your heart to him. You talk with him. You walk with him. And you pray to God. You talk to him and walk with him through the day. You have a love affair with God. And you spend time with God. And as I was seeking for a wife back then in 1977 and 1978 and so forth, then you are seeking for the creator of the heavens and the earth. Much more important. And you love him. You spend time with him. You're not just jealous of your time with him. So you've got to do as Mr. Armstrong did. Seek God with all your heart and be sure that you are going all out and you're fasting, your prayer, and as Mr. Armstrong used to pray, he used Hosea 7:14. It says in the in the Moffat translation, he didn't hear Israel's prayers because they did not put their hearts in their prayers. I read it, Hosea 7:14. I forget the King James wording, but Moffat's little. They did not put their hearts in their prayers. You've got to put your heart in your prayers. Mean it. Talk to God with all your being. You're talking to your Father, who's going to be your Father forever your creator, the governor of the universe. So put your heart in it and walk with God. Then you'll get the help that you need. You turn to Matthew chapter 4, brethren. Matthew chapter 4. And here you find how Jesus started out his ministry. 
even Jesus in the human flesh. Matthew 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted, that's the first thing he did. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. He felt terribly weak after 40 days and nights. He knew he had to be close to God and he went after it with his whole being. We can't fast that long today. I'm not recommending that. But right after that, in verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. He had been fasting to start his ministry, fasting and praying and seeking God. How did the Apostle Paul start out his ministry? One of the most powerful ministries in all of humankind apart from Jesus. It shows back here in Acts. Read it with me, Chariot. The book of Acts, chapter 9. He was on the road to Damascus to persecute the Christians. And God struck him down, blinded him as he journeyed and came near Damascus. Verse 33, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice. Obviously, Christ was speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God the Father didn't talk to people, but Jesus Christ did. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He was sincere. He was a Protestant evangelical or whatever, comparatively, as the Jews were at that time. All out, he was sincere. He just didn't understand. What do you want me to do? And then he knew what to do. What do you want me to do? And then God said, go this place and so on. And then verse 9 shows what he did. He was three days without sight, totally blinded, and neither ate nor drank. He totally fasted for three days and three nights. That's the beginning of his ministry. And then he was healed by Ananias, and immediately God healed him and began to use him from then on. And one of the most powerful ministries in human history apart from Christ He started out by seeking God in prayer and fasting. And then you turn back to Matthew uh, chapter 6. And Christ tells us, of course, the most important thing in one sense of all, right at the beginning of his ministry. Back in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 31. Matthew chapter 6, if you turn there, and verse 31. Jesus then had been talking about how that God will take care of you. He says then, In verse 31, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or drink or wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. God knows what you need. You don't have to worry about it. Do your part, of course. He does say, brethren, six days you shall work it. As long as I'm alive and have energy, I'm going to work. I could retire, and we have a retirement program, so I would get enough to live, but I would rather work. I would rather serve God and have the, have an impact on this world. But seek what? First, above everything else, seek first the kingdom of God and what else? And His righteousness. Seek God and His righteousness, His very character, His nature, the fruits of the Holy Spirit to help you love God with all your heart and strength and mind to help you really truly love your neighbors yourself and forgive him and help him and serve him and give to him and be a giver and not a getter. 
Seek God with all your heart. He says that's the main thing. Seek. Get that word in your mind. A very important word. It's a four-letter word. Seek God, the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So that's what we're all to do. We've got to learn to seek God with all of our being. Turn now to back to the book of Colossians, brethren. Turn now, if you would, to the book of Colossians. And let's read here in verse chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Paul tells these brethren in the church of God at Colossae and explains this to them. He said, if then you were raised with Christ, obviously you've come up out of the watery grave, as it says in Romans 6, 1 to 6, you're buried with Christ in baptism. It's a symbol of a burial. You come up out of that watery grave. Then you're to put on Christ. You're to have Christ in you from then on. If then you were raised with Christ, what do you do? Seek. Get that key word. Seek what? Seek those things which are above. Seek God. Seek Christ. Seek the Holy Spirit. Seek God's will. Seek for God's coming kingdom. Think in your mind and meditate. What kind of job will I have in tomorrow's world? Am I preparing to be a king? Am I preparing to be a priest? Do I know how to teach others, love others, build others, forgive others, guide others in the right way? Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. How do you guide your mind? Set your mind on things above. So many young people set their mind on, well, the latest television show or the latest movie or the latest game or something or the latest whatever it is. Don't do that. It's not wrong to know about some of these things. And I don't even know the latest TV stars, not because I'm so good. Part of it's because I'm older. They seem so young. I'm not very impressed with them anymore. So I don't even see, I don't even know their names anymore. So many of these beautiful young girls come up and they're prancing around. They've got beautiful figures. But, you know, that reminds me of, I have a beautiful, I have several one, but one I think about, I better not mention her name, but it's especially unusual and I think about my granddaughter. So once they remind me of my granddaughter, then I'm okay. <laughs> I have a different approach. I think God looks on all of us as his great, great, great grandchildren. We're down on earth and we're flesh and he's spirit. And he doesn't have any particular grudge against some young man down here. And he certainly doesn't lust after any young woman. He made us. He's not thinking that way. A different concept, a different level of existence. So set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Don't set your mind on just trying to beat the other guy out or get ahead or make money, per se. If you can make more money to serve the church, if you can use your talents, your strengths to help the work in any way, some of you have talents and you're serving in the work here, and I appreciate it. But you're hopefully doing that to serve God, not just to be smart or to impress others. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died when you were baptized. You should have given your life to God and you should have meant it. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, that is your life from then on. When Christ, who is our life. I like that expression. I think all of you do too, I hope. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You will be there. Because you will have learned to seek God with all your being. 
as a way of life. You will learn to study this book, to meditate on it in a regular pattern every day. And you will have learned to pray fervently at least 20 or 30 minutes every day, hopefully more than that, but 20 or 30 minutes in the morning and some more later through the day. You will have learned to fast once or twice a month and pray in God and study on your knees to seek God. Father, help me, teach me, fashion me, mold me. Help me to be like you are. I want to be in your kingdom so bad I can taste it. Clean me up and scrub me out. Take away all this vanity, jealousy, and lust and greed. Help me really do what this book says and be like you are. If you pray that way and you mean it, you will be there. You will be there because you have learned to seek God and his kingdom and his righteousness above all else. Seek first that. And that's what Jesus said and Jesus knows. So let's do that, brethren. A vital key. Don't just drift into God's kingdom. Seek God. And by God seeking God, just going after God in a sense every day, you'll have a much better opportunity to get the help you need and to be in the kingdom of God and walk and talk and commune with God and share with God and interact with God and with Christ and fellowship with God and with Christ and with the spirits of just men made perfect throughout all eternity in the family of God.